welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bellevue Sermon Podcast. Today's message comes to you from the pulpit of Bellevue Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, through our Sunday morning preaching ministry. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you, and that the Lord would use it for His glory. Well, amen. Go ahead and be turning to the book of Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Again, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the lukewarm church, the letter to the church in Laodicea. Now, as you're turning to Revelation 3, I'd like to just share an illustration, a little funny uh, statistic that I read recently. Um, and it just cracked me up, and I felt that you would benefit from it this morning. Statistics tell us that in any given year, approximately half a million armadillos will become roadkill. Now, I see them all the time on Lay Springs and Tabor and even coming up the mountain. But even with all its natural defenses, right, the thick, leathery, armor-like skin, the armadillo consistently learns a little too late that the middle of the road is not the safest place to be. In fact, National Geographic uh, said that the nine-banded armadillo's, quote, hapless propensity for being run over by cars has earned it the nickname, the hillbilly speed bump. Sadly, there are a great many churches and Christians that have been tricked into thinking like an armadillo that the middle of the road is the safest place to be. The message of the world today is don't totally commit in anything. Right? Keep your options open. Don't take a stand. And certainly don't risk offending anyone. And what happens is that people who buy into these sort of mottos and mantras of the world, they compromise. And they try to camp out somewhere in the middle of the road. And if they remain there, they too will find themselves destroyed. Even spit out of the mouth of the Lord, as we'll see in our text today. Today we're going to see that the Lord will not abide a lukewarm church, and He will not abide a lukewarm Christian. So let's look at Revelation 3, 14 through 22 together. And if you are willing and physically able, please stand in honor and reverence, respect for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we come before you again this morning. We're thanking you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Lord, your holiness, your power, the fullness of who you are. Lord, we thank you. Fathers, we've spent time this week thanking you in sort of these formal rituals of thanksgiving. Lord, may we realize that even now, no matter where we are, no matter what our situation in life, no matter our circumstances, we are to be thankful because you are good and gracious. And Lord, may that thankfulness bring us heat. Father, as we thank you for all the blessings that we have, for every good and, and wonderful gift that you've given us, Lord, for even the air that we breathe and the life that we have, Lord, let us not be lukewarm. Said, Lord, we pray that today you would stir us, you would call us to a, to a burning passion for your word and your will. Lord, we pray that in this place today you would be honored and glorified, that, Lord, you would use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your message to your people. And, Father, we pray that you would have your will to be done here. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we are looking in the book of Revelation. And as we think about the context here, it's important for us to understand exactly what's going on and, and why it's happening, why this text exists in the providence of the Lord. This book was written by the Apostle John whilst he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And while John was there, the Lord Jesus revealed to him things which were to come. And at the beginning of this revelation, we find this series of letters. These letters are to seven churches with instruction to them specifically. Letters to the seven churches are introduced in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, which says this. John has given us a little background here. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Each of these churches we see are given a specific message. A message to the angel of the church of... Ephesus, or Smyrna, or Pergamum, or etc., etc. We see that these messages are given to the angel of the church. Now, the word for angel in Greek means messenger. And so what we see here is that when this letter is addressed here in verse 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the idea here is not that there is an individual angel assigned to each church, but rather that the letter is addressed to the messenger of each church or in more simple terms, just their pastor. Today we're looking at the letter to the church of Laodicea. 
This is the last of the seven churches. And it's important for us to know that Laodicea was a a wealthy and prosperous area. They were incredibly well off. This was a church that was situated in in just kind of an upper class society. Before we continue, the next thing that we're told here is who is speaking. Now it's important for us, before we take any message in our life, to consider the speaker. Here, the speaker is no simple person. Rather, this message is from Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the Amen, literally, the it is done, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of creation. Beginning here, not, uh, not firstborn, so as to suggest that Jesus was created, but the beginning, as in he is the origin of all things. From him, all life springs and flows. He's the creator. And what does the risen Christ, the creator of all things, say to this church in Laodicea? I know your deeds. Scary enough, right? The sovereign and holy Lord of all creation says, I know you and I know what you do. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. What does lukewarm mean? It means tepid, right? It's not hot or cold. I often think about this as when uh, my coffee has sat out too long. And it doesn't become cold coffee. It's just room temperature coffee. And in my opinion, room temperature coffee is nasty. And so I spit it out of my mouth. But in terms of the church, the individual Christian... The lukewarm one is one who is not enthusiastic or serious about their faith, but they also don't really get hostile. This is not the heat of a committed believer, nor is it the frigid cold. What we see here is someone who is doing the spiritual hokey pokey. They have one foot in and one foot out. Here's the thing, though. Those that are lukewarm are lying to themselves. Because the Lord is emphatic and clear about what will happen to the lukewarm. What happens? Graphic imagery, they will be spit out. The Greek word here, though, is actually closer to vomit you out. And the reason for this is that there is no middle ground. You are either born again by the grace and mercy of Christ, or you are still dead in sin. There is no middle state of lukewarmness. Neutrality is a myth. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. So the biggest issue with lukewarmness is that it is a compromised and indifferent approach to God, which is not acceptable. If you are only halfway... Right? If you're only halfway in, if you're trying to ride the fence, you are not with Christ, and therefore lukewarm people in churches are against him. What does that look like? What does such a church look like? In short, a lukewarm church is more concerned with keeping the status quo and keeping up appearances than pursuing holiness. 
and living out scripture and sharing the gospel with others. Lukewarm Christians, they, they do things like hear the word of God and they'll say things well, like, that was a good sermon, but they're not stirred by it. There's no passion, there's no zeal, there's no heat. Lukewarm individuals, they pursue the appearance of Christianity without offending the world. They try to ride the balance between the word and the world. And what we see is that this is an impossible position. If you stay in the middle of the road, you get run over. And these sorts of people, they embody the warning from Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They, they gather in churches. They, they call themselves Christians. They live out some sort of moral theories and principles. But they also compromise with the world. Don't want to offend anybody or don't want to hurt any feelings. We don't want to take a stand for God's word. And so we recognize that this is an impossible and incredibly dangerous position to be in. And if that's the case, then we must do everything we can to be people who are on fire for the Lord. We want to be hot, not lukewarm. So how do we do it? How do we prevent the cooling off that seems to have happened to the church of Laodicea? And how can we heat up? Well, the letter to Laodicea gives us some clear application about how to do just that. And I have three steps for us today. The first step is to recognize your reality. Recognize your reality. And we see this in verse 17. The root of their lukewarmness, their fake neutrality, is that they are spiritually blind. They have a failure to recognize just who they are. Now, the first step in any sort of addiction program or, or rehab type situation, uh, if you're dealing with those sorts of things, is admitting that you have a problem. Well, what the church in Laodicea was doing is suggesting that they have it all figured out. They don't need any help. They have arrived. Right? And to kind of put it in terms of the addiction idea, they're saying, I can quit whenever I want to. <laughs> I've got it all figured out. I don't need any help. When in reality, what we see is that this is a serious issue of pride. They're blinded to the reality of their situation. What does the Lord identify in them? Jesus, says, you say I'm rich, I'm wealthy, and I need nothing. When in reality, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We see that their assessment and the Lord's assessment are radically different. They think everything is wonderful and they're in perfect shape and that they don't need anything, when in reality, what they need is everything. In reality, there's a cancer and rot eating away at everything. Now, illustrating this point is, is really easy. We've talked about it before. I know uh, Brandon Pierce used this image before in music and kids' ministry, but this is the equivalent of body dysmorphia, right? Someone has body dysmorphia. They think that, for instance, a super skinny person would think that they are super fat. And it doesn't matter how thin they get, all they see is fat, and so they starve themselves and it's dangerous to their body. 
But on a different level, right, we have a similar problem when a former athlete goes and tries to do something they haven't done in 20 years. I had a boss that used to say round belly things shouldn't do flat belly things. If we have an inaccurate assessment of our bodies, we'll usually wind up hurt. The same is true in our spiritual body. We have to rightly understand where we are. For the Laodiceans, their being out of touch with reality led them to a place of compromise and complacency that puts them in danger of being spewed from the Lord's mouth. Now when it comes to our salvation, we realize we have to see that we are in fact wretched, pitiable sinners who have no way out on our own in order to see our desperate need for a gracious Savior. Once we're saved, we need to clearly see where we are so that we will be sanctified. If we think that we're perfect like we are, we'll likely miss out on the application of God's word that addresses our sin. We won't hear what the word says about us because we think we are perfect. When we persist in sin, when we refuse to grow in grace, Ephesians 4.30 tells us that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We need to look at our situation with an honest evaluation. But sometimes we go snow blind to ourselves because we live in this struggle every day. And sometimes we get blind to how we really are. So we need an evaluation from the one who knows us better than we even know ourselves. We need to pray Psalm 139, 23 through 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to ask the Lord to reveal the reality of our condition to us. And lead us in truth. And then when confronted with reality. We don't need to bury our heads in the sand or live in denial. We need to address it head on. The Laodiceans were blind to their reality, but the biggest problem in that is their overconfidence in themselves. Their over-reliance on self-sufficiency. You see, again, the, the Laodiceans, they were rugged individualists at their core. They lived in this wealthy area. They said, we don't need anything. The city has this sort of spirit of self-sufficiency. One commentator I was reading, he referenced the city's history. In AD 60, an earthquake devastated the city. And they refused any outside help. They said, we don't want the help of the empire. We don't want any charity. We're going to rebuild it ourselves. And they did. They didn't need or want outside help. In fact, the historian Tacitus says they are too rich to accept help from anyone. Now, while this may have been true in a monetary or physical sense, this is blatantly fault in the spiritual sense. We need to recognize that according to James 1.17, everything good in our life comes from God. We did not do this on our own, and furthermore, we cannot do this. On our own. Just as we could not see our sin until the Holy Spirit awakened us to the truth of God's Word and His holiness, we cannot truly grasp our spiritual reality apart from the Lord's guidance and providence. 
So again, pray that the Lord would reveal to you what your spiritual reality is, what the reality of our church is, and then trust him and rely on him moving forward. But as long as we think we can do it on our own, we are lukewarm at best. When we realize our only hope is total reliance on the Lord, we will burn with passion for him and his word. Don't lie to yourself anymore. Just as the Lord knew the deeds of the Laodiceans, he knows your deeds. May he reveal reality to us. So the first step is to recognize our reality. The second step is to reinvest in right things. Reinvest in right things. We see this here in verse 18. Jesus does not tell the Laodiceans that everything is hopeless. Now, it is 100% hopeless in our own strength and their own strength, but not his. With him, there is no hopeless situation. So we see that the advice, the counsel of the Lord, is not to sit there and wallow in how bad everything is. I think this is the reason that so many people like to lie to themselves and to live in denial of their reality, because if we acknowledge the mess, it'll overwhelm us. If we acknowledge the mess, our first temptation is going to be to sit there and to, and to just wallow in sorrow, to stress eat. Jesus doesn't say sit there and wallow and get overwhelmed and fade away into darkness. No, Jesus tells them to act. See your reality and then run to Christ. Jesus here uses the language of buying and selling. Now, we need to realize Jesus is not suggesting that we can buy the stairway to heaven or that we can purchase salvation with anything we have or anything we can do. But he uses the language of buying because in reality, it will cost us something. In reality, it will cost us everything. It will cost us our life. They say we need nothing. And Jesus says, actually, you desperately need gold refined by fire. You need white garments so that your shame is not clear. You need eye ointment to open your eyes from blindness. All of these are very specific illustrations. All of this is an analogy and an illustration of the gospel. We know from the gospels that the treasure we are to store up in heaven is gospel treasure. The white garments that cover our shame are the garments of Christ where we put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ. The eye ointment is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit opens our eyes that we may see truth and convicts us of our sin. And the fact that Jesus says, buy from me, shows that there is only one place where the hope of the gospel may be found and that is in him. We cannot buy this gold from a mine. We can't buy these clothes from the store. We can't get this eye salve from the pharmacy. It can only come from him. But what is their reality? He says, in reality, remember, you are poor. How can one who is poor buy such as this? Yeah, and they can't. We must rely on his grace. Jesus tells us we were bought with a price. He tells us that we must come to him and it will cost us our life. He told the disciples it would cost them everything, even their families and their jobs. 
We must be willing to lay down our very lives for Christ. But when we put all of our hope and our trust in him, we receive these things. This beautiful hope of the gospel. We receive gold refined by fire. We receive a new life. It covers our sin by the blood of Christ. So for Laodicea, they thought they could do it on their own. And when you think that you can do it on your own, the investment of your time and energy and focus is not rightly on Christ and the gospel, it's on self and selfish worldly desires. You see, if we want to prevent lukewarmness or even heat up out of a, out of a, a cold period, we need to reinvest our focus, our energy, our everything, our life itself on the gospel of grace because it is our only hope. So rather than focusing on yourself or your talents, your energy, your efforts, your abilities, we need to have a full wholesale reliance on Christ and the gospel. See, if you think you can be saved by anything other than the gospel, there's going to be zero desire to evangelize or preach the gospel or even to believe it yourself. And this is the problem of Laodicea. They thought they could do it without a total reliance on Christ. And thus, they really had no reason in their mind to be passionate about the gospel. But someone who's experienced the gospel, someone who knows that they are hopeless without it, and hopeless without the grace of God, that's a person who will be fired up to preach that gospel to everyone they can. I think sometimes we're so just lukewarm or callous about evangelism. We aren't passionate about evangelism because we think, oh, you know, they'll figure it out on their own. But when we realize the only hope is Christ and that they will not turn from their sin unless the Spirit awakens them by the truth of God's Word, then we'll be fired up to preach it. Don't fall into the trap the Laodiceans did. Reinvest your energy and your focus and your effort on the gospel. Recalibrate your minds to gospel truth. Redouble your efforts and passion for the gospel. You see, if we don't care about the gospel, we are lukewarm. But I promise you, a passion for the gospel will lead us to be passionate and zealous for the rest of God's word. So we need to recognize our reality We need to reinvest in right things. And then thirdly, finally this morning, we need to reheat and repent. Following the clear exhortation of Jesus for us to recognize our reality and reinvest in the right things of the gospel comes a final clear encouragement and correction. Reheat and repent. Verses 19 through 22 give us this. Verse 19 tells us that the ones who are loved by Jesus are the ones he will reprove and discipline. And I think that there's something important in that, obviously. There's many things, but one thing here that I think we don't realize is that Jesus is acknowledging that it will hurt to hear these things. Sometimes recognizing reality and refocusing on the gospel involves tough conversations. 
Sometimes recognizing reality means that there are things we love that we can no longer do. Sometimes it means that there will have to be a serious improvement in certain areas. Sometimes it means we need to buckle down and repent, as we're going to discuss in a moment. But Jesus says, even though it is tough and even though it may hurt, I am doing this out of love. Because you living in a false reality that may be fun for a time but ends in pain and eternal suffering, that is not as good as living in a temporarily painful reality that hurts for a moment but brings eternal, lasting joy. Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, I love you too much to let you stay there, so I discipline you. Sometimes the storms we go through are storms of correction. Sometimes the Lord will send us through a difficult season to adjust our attitude. And sometimes the pain and difficulty that we're walking through is not an attack of the enemy, but rather it is the loving discipline of the Father. And I think part of recognizing your reality may be sometimes to step back and say, is this happening in my life because of an attack of the enemy, or is this the discipline of the Lord? Many times we assume oh, this is an attack of the enemy. When we should be looking at and recognizing that those whom he loves, he disciplines. Sometimes we're in a season of discipline, so we will recognize the reality that we are not where we need to be and that we cannot fix it ourselves. What do we do when the Lord shows us that we're not where we need to be? Verse 19 is clear. We are to be zealous and repent. The word choice here is is not coincidental, but I think we miss a little of the imagery in English. The word for zealous, it has the same root as hot. To be zealous in Greek is literally to burn with passion. Burning is a complete opposite of lukewarm. We reheat by being passionate, which looks like what? Repentance. A complete turn from sin and a turn to Christ. Again, that 180 degree turn from sin to Christ. How do we reheat? How do we get hot? We heed the correction of Christ, and that is how. We repent. We cannot be passionate about the things of God and persist in sin. We must repent where we fall short. And the Laodiceans and many of us, the thing we must repent of is thinking we can do it on our own. But regardless, whatever it is in your life, whatever you might be harboring, those pet sins that seem to hang on and die hard, repent. If we're serious about repentance, then we're going to be serious about the things of the Lord. We're going to be passionate about it. But so often, the lukewarm Christian, the lukewarm church, they want to abide by these little little compromises. Quote, unquote, little. Oh, if we just give a little bit to the world, then maybe we won't offend them anymore. We need to repent. There is no passionate Christianity without repentance. And 
We see here this next illustration that Jesus uses is very powerful. This is the infamous knocking at the door scene. Now here we see that this is in the context of the church. And I think so often we get the wrong idea of this passage, such as to say that, I've heard this over the years, maybe you have too, that what's happening here is that Jesus is knocking on the door of the sinner's heart, repeatedly begging, let me in, let me in, please let me in. And what Jesus is saying here in reality is, if you hear my voice, there will be fellowship. If you hear my voice, there will be fellowship. This is about the church returning to Christ. The emphasis here is on if they hear his voice, which is something that John discussed in his gospel. We remember back in John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So here when he's talking about this, and he's very clear, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. True believers will hear his voice. If we want to heat up, it's clear. We must repent of our sin and hear the voice of the Lord. Whether that sin is the same as the Laodiceans, right, self-sufficiency and compromise, or if it's more straightforward, like lying, stealing, or lusting, the solution is the same. Repent and hear the voice of the Lord. Listen, a, a lukewarm church, like the church in Laodicea, is made up of lukewarm individuals. We realize that the church is not this building, it is this people. And if we are lukewarm, it affects the church. The inverse is also true, right? If we're passionate, will also affect the church. If we want to see our church burn with passion for the things of God, it starts with us as individuals repenting, hearing the voice of the Lord, and living passionately for Him. When we do that, what happens? The church catches fire. But look at the promise of Christ here in Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Who's the one that conquers? It's the believer, not by our strength or power, but by his. Romans 8, 37-39 tells us this, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How are we more than conquerors? Through Christ. We are more than conquerors in Christ. God loves us so much. He sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment we deserve. And if we repent of our sins and believe in him, confessing Christ as Lord and putting all of our hope and faith and trust in him, we are saved. We are more than conquerors. And this is not just a temporary hope that we cling to. It is an eternal thing that we can take to the bank. 
And so today, if we are to avoid being lukewarm and to be a people that are on fire for Christ, we must recognize our reality. Are you dead in sin or are you alive in Christ? If you're a believer, have you backslidden? Is there something you need to repent of? Are you really where you think you are? We must reinvest in the right things of the gospel. We need to focus our time, our energy, our efforts. We need to find our hope in the gospel alone. And we need to repent, hearing the voice of the Lord. Verse 22 puts a lovely bow on our time together this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we have ears to hear the word of God. Do not persist in sin, but be passionate for the things of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again this morning thankful for your word. Lord, thankful for the truth of it. That even when we were pitiable, wretched, lost sinners, you loved us. Sent your son to die for us. And Lord, we realize that we love because you first loved us. Our passion, our our zeal, our energy, our heat should come from the fact that you are so gracious and so good and you love us so much. And so, Lord, today we pray you would convict us of where we have been lukewarm, where we have been compromised, where we have been complacent, where we have tried to ride the fence between the world and your word. And Lord, we pray that you would call us to a deep, burning passion for you and your word. May your will be done in our service here today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.